Uh, I'd like to now welcome uh, Luis Rosa to read this morning's scripture. Uh, he will be reading in Espanol. So, of course, if you uh, know Spanish, you're good. If you don't, uh, it's there in your bulletin. Luis, please come. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17. A unos que confiaban en sí mismo como justos y menospreciaban a otros, dijo también esta parábola. Dos hombres subieron al templo a orar. Uno era fariseo y el otro publicano. El fariseo, puesto en pies, oraba consigo mismo de esta manera. Dios, te doy gracias porque no soy como los otros hombres, ladrones, injustos, adúlteros, ni aun como este publicano. Ayuno dos veces a la semana, doy diezmos de todo lo que gano. Mas el publicano, estando lejos, no quería ni aun alzar los ojos al cielo, sino que se golpeaba al pecho diciendo, Dios, sé propicio de mí, pecador. Os digo, que éste descendió a su casa justificado antes que el otro, porque cualquiera que se ensalte será humillado, y el que se humilla será enaltecido. Traían a él los niños para que los tocase, lo cual viendo los discípulos les reprendieron. Mas Jesús llamándolos dijo, Dejad a los niños venir a mí, y no los impidáis, porque de tales es el reino de Dios. De cierto os digo, que el que no recibe al reino de Dios como un niño, no entrará en él. Uh, so, I have two daughters, and I'm just realizing now I did not get proper permission for what I'm about to say, so I uh, hope they extend some grace to me. Uh, but I have two daughters, uh, and as they've grown up, um, a really distinct thing has happened numerous times over the course of their life. Um, I have a distinct memory of dropping off our oldest daughter to a new school. Uh, she was there for the first time. Um, I wasn't allowed in to walk her in, and so I had to drop her off at, a, at this door that led down this long hallway. Uh, she had to walk alone. And as I stood there and I watched her, uh, every like three steps, she'd stop and she'd turn around and she'd see if I was still there. And she would do that all the way down the hall until she couldn't do it anymore. Uh, I remember, oh, by the way, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, <laughs> Those days are gone. Um, my other daughter, uh, our younger daughter, uh, she loves to create things. Uh, and whenever she creates something that she's really proud of, uh, do you know who she looks to for validation and affirmation of what she's accomplished? Um, of course, be my wife and I. Right? We're the first people that she wants to see it. Um, and as I've reflected on that, I do think about the fact that you know, when we need comfort, when we need assurance, when we need affirmation, when we need uh, validation, there is something that we often will look to. And usually, the thing that we look to in those moments is what we trust and love most. For my daughters, of course, that has been uh, my wife and I. But I wonder how often that same idea of when we are in need of assurance and affirmation and comfort uh, applies to us as well. What do we look to? Uh, if you've been with us, we've been in this series called Walking with Jesus. This is actually our final week of that uh, series, uh, and there's so much that could be said. We've been walking through uh, the Gospel of Luke. There's so much that could be said about the Gospel of Luke, but let it suffice to say that this week's passage and what we're going to look at today really does lay plain for us 
what we've been trying to get to over the last six or seven weeks, which is that we haven't really been interested in learning more about Jesus, but rather we've been trying to get to know Jesus in a very relational kind of way. And knowing Jesus, as we're going to see, is to look to him for our deepest source of security and comfort, comfort and validation. That it truly is to look at him the way that a young child might look at their parent. And so here, what we see in Luke 18 is Jesus challenging us to consider where we are looking. Now, last week, we, um, we were also presented with this interesting juxtaposition between a tax collector and a Pharisee. This week in Luke 18, we're presented with the same thing. Again, tax collectors being, uh, they were some of the most hated people in Israel, uh, despised among the people. Uh, And then, of course, you had the Pharisees, who most people actually looked up to. They outdid everyone when it came to works of righteousness and adherence to the law. In many respects, they were actually the good guys of the day, especially in comparison to the tax collectors. And what's interesting is that in this story that Jesus gives, each of these men are looking to different places for a certain uh, sense of comfort and validation. And each of these things uh, speaks volume, I think. Each of these men speak volume to the ways that we too might look to certain things. And in particular, I think it gives clarity on how we go about walking with Jesus and looking toward him for that sense of validation. And so in order to understand what what I'm talking about, uh, I want to look at three things in particular. I want to look at how one of these men looks up and out for his validation. Another one looks down and in. And then lastly, we'll see how we ought to look ahead. Let me just explain to you what I mean. So first, looking up and out. First, look at verse 9 says this about uh, the Pharisees that Jesus was speaking to, to some who were confident in their own righteousness. It says that Jesus told them this parable. Those who were confident in their own righteousness. Of course, Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees. And it says that the reason he did so was because they were confident in that righteousness and that they also had a tendency to look down on and think very little of other people. And so what we have here is Jesus challenging again the Pharisees and their posture of superiority to everyone else because, here's what's important about this posture, is that this posture is indicative of how they not only look at others but also how they look to God. Let's look at the parable itself. There's several interesting elements to the Pharisee, the way that the Pharisee prays in this passage. The first thing is, look at verse 11. It says that he stood by himself. Now, uh, we don't know exactly where in the temple he was standing, but in relation to where the tax collector is standing, which later on says that he was standing far off at a distance, it's safe to assume that the Pharisee is likely standing as close to the Holy of Holies the altar as he could, right? So this was the center of the temple. This is where they believe God's presence resided and rested. In other words, he was boldly approaching the place where God was. And he proudly declares in this place, he proudly declares without shame or hesitation all the things he knows that he's doing well. It's a boldness, it's a confidence before God in others. And in one sense then, 
you could say that he's confidently looking up to God with his prayer and his moral perfections. But on top of that, not only is he looking up, but he's also at the same time looking out. And what I mean by that is that he looks around the room at all of those who cannot measure up to him, like the tax collector and others that are there, and he boldly prays this prayer, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. So in this confidence of him looking up, him looking out, we see where the Pharisee, I think, is finding his security and validation and comfort. I mean, of course, it's in his ability to obey the law of God and be superior to others. And on top of that, interestingly, not only does he just care about obeying God, but he also seeks to go above and beyond what God even requires of him. Let me explain to you what I mean. Look at what he says. He says, I'm not a robber. We could say, well, that's good, right? Because God in his Ten Commandments says, do not steal. He says he doesn't commit adultery. Again, well, that's good because God says in his law not to commit adultery. He says in verse 12 that he tithes, which is great because God commands in his law that a tenth or a tithe of one's income should be given away. And so in this sense, he is truly living righteously. But here's what's interesting in verse 12. He also adds, and I fast twice a week. Now, what's that about? I mean, what's curious about that statement is that nowhere in the Bible is he commanded to fast twice a week. It's interesting that the Pharisee is adding to what God had already required of him, and then he uses it as a way of bolstering the argument as to why he ought to be worthy of God's approval. And I draw all this out Because what we see in this Pharisee is an enormous amount of self-righteousness, and we see two things come out of it as a result. One, we see that self-righteousness is a monster whose hunger is never satisfied. It always needs to add more to what's being done. And then the second thing is that self-righteousness never works without comparison. It always needs some kind of bolstering as to make it look better and better in comparison, especially to other people. And if we've ever known anyone who is self-righteous, maybe you are self-righteous and you recognize some of this in yourself. Uh, I certainly know that I do. This plays out in different ways. Self-righteousness has a way of playing itself out in different ways. Sometimes self-righteousness comes out in this kind of way, this over-the-top, overt arrogance. Sometimes that happens. But other times, Self-righteousness can come out a little bit more subtly. So sometimes it comes out in one's inability to talk about anything else except themselves and their accomplishments. Uh, Sometimes self-righteousness comes out when someone is corrected and their only reaction and instinct is to list off all the reasons why they should not be corrected. And I think it's fair to say, I think maybe some of us are here and we're thinking, phew, I'm really glad I never am like that, and I never think more highly of myself than I ought to. If you're having that thought, welcome to the self-righteous club. It's an extraordinarily self-righteous thought, right? And even more problematic, right, than the self-righteousness puffing us up, puffing up this Pharisee here. Self-righteousness is also fundamentally 
a rejection of God as God. I mean, the irony of the Pharisees' prayer is that it's an idolatrous prayer. Let me show you why. Look at verse 14. All right, so it says that this man who could so easily rattle off all the reasons he should be validated before God, it says that he walked away unjustified, invalidated, unrighteous. Isn't that interesting? I mean, why is that the case? It's because he mistook the righteousness that God worked in him for the righteousness that justified and validated him. Catch that. He mistook the righteousness that God was working in him for the righteousness that validated him. Those are not the same things. And those of us that battle with self-righteousness will have a lifelong battle with this. See, mistaking the righteousness that God works in us for the righteousness that justifies us is essentially saying, God, I do not acknowledge that you are the one who is making me into a righteous person. Rather, don't you see how great and worthy I am as a result of what I'm accomplishing for you? It's wanting what God gives without acknowledging God as the giver. I mean, consider this. What if this was the Pharisee's prayer to God? God, left to myself, I would have no righteousness to speak of. I do not rob, I do not commit adultery, I tithe, I even fast regularly. But I know without your grace at work in me, I would not do these things. So thank you for your mercies toward me, a sinner. I mean, do you see the difference? One is acknowledging or attempting to acknowledge that I have accomplished these things. Another is saying, God, I could never accomplish these things. And it's only by your mercy toward me that I am able to accomplish these things. Those are very different approaches to righteousness. And now there's some of us here who do this, and we use our morality uh, as the basis for our confidence. But there is another way that this plays out in relation to uh, other kinds of accomplishments that we have in life. You know, like the Pharisee, there are additions that we make that bolster our sense of being better. For example, for some, they see the ways in which they are gainfully employed and as a result look down on or think less of those who are not. Another way this can play out is for those who have stable family structures, thinking less of those who do not. Another way this can play out is that those from one nationality or culture, thinking less of those from another nationality or culture. I draw those examples out because why has life's circumstances for you led to gainful employment? I mean, if your immediate answer is not by the grace of God toward me for reasons that I do not understand because I do not deserve it, if that's not the immediate response, we're like the Pharisee. If we look at the current stable family structure that maybe we grew up in or that we currently have curated in our own families, if we were to ask, why do I have that stable family structure? If the immediate answer is not, by the grace of God toward me for reasons I do not understand because I do not deserve it, then we're like the Pharisee. If we ask the question, why? Do we live in a nation of peace and not war? If the immediate answer is not by the grace of God toward me for reasons I do not understand because I do not deserve it, 
then we're like the Pharisee. If we ever acknowledge anything good that is in us or any experience that we have, if we do not acknowledge it being the sheer grace of God because we do not deserve it, then we're like the Pharisee. This is what it means to be self-righteous. And this Pharisee is like a child looking to a parent for comfort and validation, except he's looking to his righteousness, his accomplishments, his life circumstances. And he trusts that those things will prove his place before God is secure. And Jesus is saying, nope, he left unjustified before God. But not only do we have this Pharisee looking up and out, we also have a story here of the tax collector. Uh, As I said last week, and we have already mentioned today, they were viewed as traitors and extortioners, uh, which was fair. They were. It's important to note that they were not good people. In fact, the tax collector was everything that the Pharisee was not. The Pharisee was moral and upstanding. The tax collector was not. The Pharisee stood near the altar with confidence, but verse 13 tells us that the tax collector stood at a distance, lacking confidence. The Pharisee confidently looked up and out. The tax collector, verse 13 says, looked down. And I would also add in. And the reason why I would say that he looked down and and in is that the entire scene is the tax collector looking into the dark depths of his soul. And as he looked in, he became ashamed. And he was so ashamed that he could not lift his head. He looked down in that shame. He looked in, he looked down, and of course, it continues that he beat his breast. I mean, I think we can imagine the scene. It's a scene of a broken man, deeply ashamed of what he's done, of what he's experienced. In a sense, it's a man looking into the darkness of his soul, looking at the blood on his hands, looking at the distance that exists between him and God, and as a result, realizing that his circumstances before God leave him under judgment, under condemnation. This man knows that before a perfectly holy God, his inability to live up to the law means that he's condemned before that God. And I wonder, with that in mind, how many of us have had that kind of experience with God? I do wonder, have we had the moment of clarity where we see how perfect and awesome and holy and righteous God is, and as a result, realize how deeply imperfect we are. I mean, we have we felt this brokenness when we look deep into our souls? And it's fair to say that if we have not experienced that, if we have not seen God as gloriously perfect and ourselves as completely imperfect and not worthy of standing before him, then we probably haven't understood the core of the gospel message. Because at the core is the understanding that we ourselves could never stand before a perfectly holy and righteous God. And so I know that as I pose that idea, there are some who have two, typically can have two reactions, both of which sit on opposite ends of a spectrum. I really like looking at opposite ends of the spectrum. One end of the spectrum, as I say this, that you are imperfect, 
that you are not worthy to stand before a perfect and holy God. I know that for many, that posture before God is rejected. That whole idea of being imperfect is rejected. And for some, they reject Christianity altogether as a result of that very doctrine. Because we live in a culture where morality is defined along the lines of not rejecting what is inside of me, but rather accepting what's inside of me. And so it creates this dissonance as we begin to process and think about what it means to look in and not be happy with what we see. So much of the Bible's articulation of our problem makes no sense to many today because when we look in, it's there that we discover our true selves. And that we ought to just be who we are and as a result make no apologies for what I discover inside. And to be fair, I get it. I mean, that's a, that, that is the modern notion. That is the modern standard and I get it. But I do wonder... Why? I mean, why is it that that which is inside of me is unchallengeable? Why? I mean, I understand that for some, they don't want to be challenged or judged by other people who likely need to be challenged and judged themselves. I get that. But I do wonder if God were to challenge who we are at our core, would we allow that challenge And if not, I wonder what kind of God that is that cannot challenge the things that might be wrong with us. Seems to me that a God unable to challenge us is really no God at all. And I wonder if the problem then is not that we don't want to be challenged, but rather we want to be God. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, though, I have also experienced those who fully embrace this doctrine of not being good enough. And so when they hear that there is fundamentally something broken within them, they 100% agree. And as a result, they are constantly beating themselves up. They look in and they react like this tax collector. They react by hiding away, by keeping distance. They don't want to look at anyone. They don't want to look to God or at God. They literally and figuratively beat their breast in self-flagellation and self-pity, saying, woe is me. I hate myself. I'm no good. Everyone hates me. God hates me. They get this. They feel it deeply. But I wonder, is self-flagellation what justifies the man in this story? Is beating ourselves up, always hating ourselves, always crying, woe is me, is that what God is looking for from us? I would say no. So neither a rejection of our inner brokenness nor an obsession with our inner brokenness justifies us ever. In fact, both of those postures at both ends of the spectrum, they make the same mistake They just express themselves differently, but they're the same because both postures cause us to think far too much of ourselves. Both of those postures spend far too much time considering ourselves. See, the rejection of our inner brokenness, we do that because I ought to be found acceptable because I am good enough. It's a very high view of oneself. And whether one's religious or not, it's Pharisee language. And Jesus says it's not sufficient for justification. But an obsession with brokenness, for those who easily self-flagellate, 
Do you know why we do that? Because ironically, we do think too highly of ourselves because we assume that we're capable of justifying ourselves before God by being good enough. And so when we're not good enough, we beat ourselves up for ho- and hoping that God sees how sorry we are for not measuring up until hopefully we can try harder and eventually become good enough. It's the same problem. It's thinking too much of ourselves. But again, if this self-flagellation then and beating ourselves up, beating our breasts, isn't what justifies the tax collector here, what is it that justified him? To understand that, we need to take a look at his next words. Because what his next words show us is not just that he looked down as he looked in, but that he also looked ahead. Let me show you what I mean. In the tax collector's very simple prayer, you see it there in verse 13, he says, have mercy on me. Now, I know we uh, immediately assume that we probably know what that means, and I think our immediate assumption about what that means is good and fair, but there's something that's happening there in that prayer that we can't actually see in English. See, there's two words that we translate uh, as mercy in English. Or there's two Greek words, rather, that we translate into one word, mercy. The one word for mercy is elio, which means what we assume it to mean. It means pity, it means compassion. Later on, you see uh, a perfect example of this in verse 38 of Luke 18. Uh, a blind beggar comes to Jesus and asks for elio, for mercy, for pity. But there's another word, Greek word, that's used here in verse 13, and it's the word that Jesus uses. He uses the word hilasterion here in verse 13. And that word comes loaded with all kinds of meaning, not just pity. See, hilasterion in the, in the temple was the Holy of Holies that we've described. It was the place where they believed God's uh, presence resided. It housed the Ark of the Covenant, which inside of the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments, And this ark represented a physical reminder of God's promises to his people. And then above the ark was something called the mercy seat or the hilasterion. And the mercy seat represented that which shielded the people of God from the judgment of God. And as a result result of their inability to keep the law. And so because of this, each year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies with a sacrifice for the atonement of sins. And the blood from that sacrifice was sprinkled on the mercy seat, on the hilasterion. And the point of all of this was to emphasize that only through an atoning work, a sacrifice, one could be justified before God. And so in this prayer, in other words, the tax collector is not asking for pity from God. God is not seeking us to cry out to him for pity. This is not self-flagellation. Rather, he's asking for atonement. He's asking for God to put to death the unrighteousness in him by way of a sacrifice. His prayer very well could have not been, have mercy on me, a sinner. His prayer was, God, make atonement for me, a sinner. See, what's happening is here is he is not 
looking at what he has done, nor is he looking at what he has not done. Rather, Jesus is telling them, if you want to be justified, you must look to what I am about to do. That is where we find justification. That is where we find validation. I mean, like my daughters, looking to me for security and validation, the tax collector, even in his deep shame, even though he doesn't realize it fully, is looking at Jesus because he knows that only Jesus provides that validation, that security that he needs And for those that would hear on this day in Luke 18, Jesus is telling everyone, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, I am going to be what you cannot be. I'm going to be perfect. He is telling them to look ahead to the atoning work that is about to come, the sacrifice that is about to come. Pharisee, you keep looking to your accomplishments, but no, they will never be sufficient But Jesus is saying, I am. Tax collector, you hate yourself for all your failures and your inability to be perfect. But come now, confident, because I am perfect for you. And when we look to the perfect life and atoning death of Jesus for our justification, for our validation before God, now it takes away any and all self-righteousness. It takes away the self-flagellation that exists in us because now we no longer have to prove ourselves to be strong or beat ourselves up for being weak. But rather like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, we can hear Jesus say to us, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfect in weakness. When we recognize our weakness and remember his grace, there is strength there. And some of us here, some of us here, we forget our weakness Some of us here, we forget his grace. And so I ask you the question, which do you tend to forget? Do you tend to forget about how broken you really are? Or do you remember that often, but you then forget about his grace? I think it's important that we answer that question for ourselves. Which do we tend to forget? I just want to end with this. I I left in the section there, starting in verse 15 where Jesus is welcoming children. Uh, I left it in there because I love that image. Um, And the reason why I love the image is because the tax collector and the children are welcomed and embraced for the same reason. I don't think it's any mistake that these stories sit on top of each other. They're embraced for the same reason because they both exhibit this humble reliance and affection for Jesus. For this reason, Jesus says that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And so as we ask the question, do I tend to forget my weakness? Do I tend to forget his grace? As we ask that question, I pray that we have a humble reliance on Jesus for our justification, our atoning sacrifice, that we trust in his righteousness and his sacrifice. And I trust that as we do that, we will see our lives change as a result And so I implore you to trust in his work, not your own, today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace. Uh, We thank you that it is grace that we even know that we are broken. Left to ourselves, we would never acknowledge such things. 
but in your kindness, you show us that there is something that is wrong. But also, God, in your kindness, you have not left us in that state. You have not left us to have to work hard to try and fix ourselves. You've not left us in a state of pity and despair. But rather, you have come in the work of your Son in order to accomplish what we could not accomplish, which was perfect righteousness, but also that atoning sacrifice. Jesus, our Savior, blood poured out across that hilasteria on the mercy seat. And God, like the tax collector, would we pray that prayer? God, have mercy on us. God, make atonement for us, a sinner. Lord, as we now turn to the table, which is the reminder of what it is that you have accomplished in us, God, I pray that it would be a meal that would nourish us, that would remind us of your goodness toward us, And Lord, I pray that um, we would, by faith, meet with Jesus here today. We ask all this in his name. Amen.